Hey everyone, this is a Godzillion and One podcast where we talk about the shockingly and seemingly endless ways to connect with each other, this world, and the God who made it all. I'm Greg Holder and I'm here with our producer, Tori Nichols. Tori, this podcast today was with a, a friend of mine, but this New York Times bestselling author, John O'Leary, is he's just he's just a ride, isn't he? When you when when you listen in on a conversation with John. Yeah, John is one of those unique people where I'm laughing, crying, I'm taking notes, I'm feeling encouraged, I'm feeling convicted, challenged, all of that. And he can do it all in about 60 seconds. It's pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah, it really is. You you have to pay attention. You need to to fasten your seatbelt and and I would say uh open your your hands and your heart and your mind to to what's going to happen. John's story is so powerful and so unique. If you know John uh, and his best-selling books, On Fire and In Awe, then you know that he came through a life struggle as a, as a boy, really, uh, that I'll let him tell that story. But it, it takes your breath away just to hear I don't, the, the endurance, the resilience. Yeah. For someone who's experienced so much life at such a young age, you almost expect him to be a little hardened, but John is one of the most winsome, encouraging people. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that I know. Yeah, I, I mean, you, you'll hear people say things like, um, "Man, I'm cheering for you," or "I'm uh, I'm championing you," uh, "I'm in your corner," those kinds of things. John really is that person. I walk away from each each time I'm with him. And not only am I encouraged, but I'm challenged and going, okay, God, I think I'm supposed to be doing that for other people better than I am. And so this conversation is going to cover a variety of topics along the way. And can we just say, uh, we, we get to, to talk about baseball. Uh, we get to talk about the Girl Scouts. Um, yeah, we go Girl Scouts. Yeah, yeah. Did not see that coming. In fact, isn't that cool that this guy who is really invited to speak around the world, has spoken to tens of thousands of people around the world. When he tells the story, it all started with, with a little... With a couple girls who reached out yeah, in a, in, a, in a Girl Scout troop. And I was so encouraged to hear how honest he was about how that first foray into public speaking went. You know, a lot of times we, we think we've got to jump into something and we've just got to be at expert level the first mm -hmm. time we jump into the pool. And John was just, as usual, so honest and so humble about this. And you hear how he communicates now, and you hear how he describes how he was that first time in front of a handful of Girl Scouts. I don't know. I just think it's encouraging for anyone who's trying to learn a new skill or maybe step into something new these days to just hear from a world-class speaker, hey, this is how I started, right? Yeah, you um, just got to start. You got to start somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And then at the very end, uh, we were done. I mean, already he had just given us so much, but I had to ask him. As a lifelong St. Louis Cardinals baseball fan, I had to ask him to tell the story about he and Hall of Fame broadcaster Jack Buck. And it starts off just exactly the way you want it to and the way you hope it does. But then did that story not turn? And become yeah, don't even give away too personal. much. You guys oh are definitely going to want to stay to the end. Oh my it was goodness. my first time hearing it, and it's one of those stories that 
I think I will keep coming back to in, in not just a hard and sweet story, but something that has such personal application. Yeah. Yeah. I want to live differently when I hear that story. I, I, I come back to it again and again. I don't want to miss those opportunities in my life. So speaking of opportunities, I think we've got a, a big, fat, juicy one here on this podcast today. Join us now as we drop into this conversation with New York Times bestselling author, John O'Leary. First of all, thanks. And how are you doing? <laughs> Loaded question. Well, first of all, you're welcome. I'm honored. I love you. You know that I love your work and your heart. Mm. And how am I doing? Like we talked about right before we hit record, blessed, man. I'm really grateful for this season, both the challenges within it, but also the opportunities within it. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't want to make the assumption that everyone knows your story, even though I'm quite sure many of our listeners do. But I think it would just be a, I, it, we would be remiss if we didn't just give you an opportunity to tell us your story. Because like for all of us, that's the context of who we are. And um, it just informs so much about you. Will you just just give us the John O'Leary story and, and you take as much time as you want. All right, people get comfortable. I encourage you to pour a tall glass of coffee. You will need to stay awake during this answer. But I'm going to begin, I think, Greg, in a place where maybe you weren't expecting to start. And it is at age 28 and a half. I'm working construction here in St. Louis, and I get a phone call from a little girl. And she begins the question with Mr. O'Leary. And I assume she's looking for my dad. So I say, well, let me give you my dad's number. And she goes, no, Mr. O'Leary, I think I, I want to talk to you. And she said, Mr. O'Leary, I heard about what you went through as a little boy. And I wonder if you would speak to my troop. And um, I'd never told anybody what I'd been through as a little boy. And I certainly was far from being a motivational speaker willing to do so with strangers. So I, you know, I, I encourage you to think otherwise. I kind of try to back out of this, Greg. But eventually she sold me. And huh. so uh, about 15 years ago, uh, a guy who got a D plus in public speaking in college gives his first keynote address in St. Louis County to the three third grade girls and does not even get a box of Samoas as payment. So I got nothing coming out of this thing. You didn't lose your amateur status at that point. No, I, I, I still am not convinced I've lost it subsequently, <laughs> but I certainly did not lose it back then. I, I spoke for eight minutes. I looked down at the table the entire time, mm. read my notes just scared and didn't, didn't feel like I belonged and didn't feel like I had anything really to pour in. But that's my first talk. And then from that came another and then another and then another. And now you and I speaking in 2021, I've been fortunate to speak a couple thousand times around the world, but it's it started with that little group and it started with one girl asking, you know, asking the question. So there's power in that. What she was looking for me to share was what happened to me when I was a kid. And what happened was at age nine, I saw boys in my neighborhood playing with fire and gasoline. And, and monkey see, monkey do. I figured if these old 11-year-olds can do it, certainly this bright nine-year-old can do it. So with mom and dad gone on a Saturday morning, I walked into the garage, bent over a can of gasoline, tried to pour a little bit on top. And the liquid comes out. It creates a massive explosion that splits the five-gallon metal can in two, picks me up. And then it launches me 20 feet against the far side of the garage, ch changing not only my life profoundly, burns on 100% of my body, 
87% third degree, lost my fingers on both hands, scars still my body three and a half decades later. So it certainly changed my life. But looking back on it, it changed profoundly the life of everybody who loved us then, like my brother, my sisters, my mom, my dad, grandparents, neighbors, cousins, people we would come to meet through the set of circumstances. Life never happens in a vacuum. And for us, looking back on it, the best of our story wasn't graduation or, you know, I do on our marriage day. It was actually how God used this tragic experience to draw you know, Godzillion, to draw individuals who did not previously know each other into a purpose far greater than they could see for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And you couldn't, of course, you couldn't anticipate all of that. But John, because I know your story, some of those connections and those those moments were so um they're so profound that they're still echoing in a bunch of our hearts um will you talk a little bit about because i promise you i have a number of people uh who are friends uh that are in the healthcare professions and this past year has been such a difficult year for all sorts of reasons for those folks but you tell a story about I would just call it a tale of two doctors and a tale of two different ways to approach this. And I, John, I don't want to oversell it, but I, I think about that story all the time. Will you share that with us? Yes. And I'm glad you asked. I seldom get to share the story. And even when you started laying out that question, I assumed you would ask about like the custodial staff and the way they saved my life or the CNA named Nurse Roy or Dr. Avajan, the therapist, the usual suspects. But the story you're asking about is really about how perspective can alter what happens next, not only in our heart and in our life and in our family, but ultimately in those we serve in the community. And we see evidence of this everywhere we look in our lives. So here's the story. A little boy named John O'Leary spends five and a half months in burn care. And then eventually I come home and man, life is good. I'm home. But life is really hard, really, really hard. And I can't do anything yet for myself. And so my parents read about a doctor, and I won't give away the city or the state, but he does this radical surgery that allows him to make fingers where there previously had been none. Like by cutting into the web of the hand, this guy figured out a, out a way to create fingers out of nothingness. So like, that's what we need. We need a little bit of hope. We need somebody to step in and love us and encourage force, us forward and to do something mighty with us. So we drive, it's about six and a half hours. We get there, we wait for this guy who eventually to let us in. What I remember most about the visit, Greg, is he just kept like talking about me and not once speaking with me. And there is a profound difference between the two. We've all. So he was, he was, he was talking to your parents about you. Yeah. He never identified me as a human or as a wow. patient or as being even in the room. Uh, he would refer to me as the patient from time to time or your son or mm. that son of yours. Mm. So I remember that distinctly, even though I was only probably 10 when we had that visit. I also remember when he touched me, it wasn't so much like a coddle or a feeling. It was more like a poke and a prod, you know, like almost like a subject matter. And so maybe it should come as no surprise when at the end of this visit, my father says, Doc, what, what do you think about my boy? What do you think about the likelihood of this surgery being successful? And for the first time, the doctor looked at me in the eyes and he said to me and then over to my father, he said, well, Denny, if your son was a horse, I would shoot him. And at nine, I, I did not even really know what he meant. What I remember distinctly is as he finished that sentence, my dad stood 
he uh, helped me back into my little wheelchair. He said, thank you very much. And we walked out of that room and we drove six hours home in silence. And, you know, I'm emotional because I never tell this story, but th this is the truth. Mom and dad, they never talked about what happened that day. Mm -hmm. Still haven't, in fact. But they cried quite a bit on the way home. And in the back of the car, you know, I don't know what they're mad about. I, I wasn't even fully yeah. able to figure it out. We could spend some time unpacking that. But what I remember even more clearly than that day was about a week later, we went to a different hospital with a guy who did a very similar surgery. His name is Carlos Papalardo. We spoke through Zoom a couple times over COVID. He is now in his early 90s here in St. Louis, Missouri. I remember meeting this guy, Carlos Papalardo, plastic surgeon here in St. Louis. When he walked into the room of this little patient and his mom and dad, <laughs> for those who can see me right now, that might only be Greg. He had a folder in front of him when he walked into the room. Yeah. So he did not look at me or mom and dad, but he was singing in Italian. And then he walks past us. He puts the little folder down on his desk. He opens it up. He starts reading. And then he claps his hands and he says, my goodness, what luck is this? Is today the day I get to meet the miracle boy himself, John O'Leary? What luck is this? And he claps his hands, picks up the folder, shuts it, puts it in front of his face. He walks out of that room singing in Italian. The door shuts. My mom and dad and I look at each other like, you know, what, what has just happened? Exactly. Well, and then the door opens up just a little bit, Greg. And so I just see his little eyes poking around the doorway. He does not once look at my mom and dad. Yeah, there's a beauty in that. He looks only, only at me and he says, oh, my gosh, I am so embarrassed. Have you been here the entire time? And I remember nodding. Yeah, I have been. He goes, I'm so sorry. My name is Carlos Papalardo. Are you the miracle boy? Are you John O'Leary? I'd never been called a miracle boy, but I nodded. Yes. So we have this visit about an hour into it. My dad says, Doc, Doc, what do you think about my boy? And he and his hands. And Carlos Papalardo says, Denny, your son's hands are as beautiful as an Italian sunset. These broken, fingerless, red, damaged, scarred, wounded, useless horse that should be shot hands. That's what he's saying here. Are as beautiful as an Italian sunset. And although I may not have fully understood where the first doc was coming from, I understood perfectly well where the second was. And to have that kind of vision as part of my care and part of my team, uh, it's not a surprise which doc we decided to work yeah. with. He did four different surgeries for me. We became friends. We used to have uh, what he would call champagne parties in the afternoon. It's like Robin Leach, champagne parties, man. Right. We would have these champagne parties where he would pour the hydrogen peroxide on my hands and we would just celebrate together the fact that my hands were slowly getting better. They were returning to the beauty that God intended them to be. And Greg, this is something you can preach on some Sunday, man, but there's something to be said about pouring hydrogen peroxide where others see brokenness yeah, and others right. see only woundedness and others see ugliness. And through the lens of the proper physician, you can see beauty. You can see... Uh, an Italian sunset. That's what Carlos Papalardo saw. That's that, there's so much about that, and I, I just want to ask you a couple of things. You you use the word early in the story, and 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 then at the end, he embodies hope. Your parents drove a long way, and I've heard you tell this story before. 
in a hot station wagon, you know, and, and they drove a long way looking just with the chance that maybe there was hope. Mm. And the way that, that you were treated like really like an object, not even a person. And you contrast that with this man who was attending to you with such power. Yeah. John, that uh, very few of us will ever be able to know fully what you have experienced and what God has brought you through. But every one of us know what it's like to be at the end of a rope and going, I think I'm out of options now. And sometimes there's that person who can be that vessel of hope to say, it's not over. God's not finished. Yeah. I can't help but make the connection of here we are coming out of 2020 and coming out of all that we've been coming out of. What would you, as someone who has been on the receiving end of powerful hope and somebody who actually, you you are a broker of hope. I mean, I see you just purvey it everywhere. Help us now. We're coming out of 2020, whatever that was. We're coming into 21, whatever that is. And this time of transition and hope is a word that I'm hearing people use a lot, but some people are cautious about it. John, what would you say to us about this? And maybe Dr. Papalardo is, it should be echoing in the back of our heads, but what, what do we do now? How can we do that for others? The first thing, Greg, when I hear you asking that question and about what we went through in 2020 and have been through through four months of 2021. And as you and I sit here today, there was another shooting just north of us up in Minneapolis. And it continues to happen in violence and poverty and racism and hatred and horrible people doing horrible things. And there, it seems if you're paying attention, there's no reason for hope. That's what it seems like. So what I would beg your listeners and viewers to do is to pay attention to truth. And where I have found such power over the past 13 months of 2020 now into 2021 is I've been far less attentive to the news cycle. And I, I used to be able to trade stories and tweets with anybody regarding what's happening politically or in the world today and to be able to speak very educated on the facts of the last 24 hours. But I think there's some wisdom in pulling away from that. Uh, we have to recognize that that is trading on fear. It is what politicians trade on. It is what media trades on. They're going for the stories that cut closest to our heart and try to remind us that there is no reason for hope, that the first doctor was indeed right, that we are all horses to be shot. More at 10 o'clock tonight, more at 10 o'clock tonight. Yeah. Tune in through a couple commercials and everything else because we'll tell you more about how broken your life is. And maybe some of the commercials will, will tell you how you can solve for that. But none of it ever works. In our world and in our Christian worldview, we have this eternal lens, which is not about 2020, as difficult as it was for just about all of us, or for 2021, as difficult as it has been for many of us. We got this worldview that is so much longer than the 24-hour news cycle. It's, it's an eternal glance over the suffering of our lives, the challenges in our relationships, the dips in our portfolios, the, the brokenness over what she said yeah. yesterday or what he did this morning. And so I... I just am trying myself, and maybe some of your listeners will understand the power of this, tuning away from the things that suck the life out of me and tuning into the things that actually give life and pour life into me so that I may give life to those that are longing for it. Most of the community was not at Sunday service yesterday. They just aren't, man. We're busy or we're afraid we're going to get sick. Or There's a million other reasons why we don't go to church. The nation's pulling away to a degree from our faith. 
they may only find that service and find that truth when you show up in their life. It may be the only evidence they ever see of Jesus Christ walking among us today. Yeah. And, and for me, I take that very seriously. Like It's a life and death matter. And so when I'm at a baseball game, I was at an opening day last week, man. Like I'm grateful for that chance. But I never, ever want to be treating anybody in a way that Jesus Christ would not have treated them. So from the parking attendant to the lady who took 14 innings to get me an order of nachos for one of my kids, I just want to be grace, man. I want to be love. I want to bring bring people, for the most part, who are living in the marketplace of despair toward hope. And then when they say, man, why are you so full of joy? That's when you get to preach the, the gospel. Right. You're happy all the time. You don't make 2020 was hard for you financially. You're broken physically. You're not that good looking, O'Leary. Why are you so darn happy? Here's why. And then I get to tell them a little bit about what I know to be true and yeah. a little bit about the eternal reason for joy in my life. It's not based around who's president. That's why I wasn't that fired up when Trump was in or when Biden was in. It's not based on that for me. It's a much uh, larger politician and healer at play here. You're taking a much longer view on this than a four-year cycle or a 24-hour news cycle. Um, One more thing to add to that, indeed. And that four-year cycle, Biden will never fix your broken family. And Trump would never have built a high enough wall to fix your needs at the board. Like The things we think we they will do for us, they can't. They're not big enough, but God is. And yeah. so for me, like it doesn't mean I'm not politically engaged. I am. I feel strongly politically, and I vote. I vote passionately sure. sure but it's it, we make things about the uh, we take it away from the common denominator and we move away from you know you've been preaching lately on hope heals and hope wins and like amen that is one thing that actually will draw us together not only as citizens in this country but around the world when when i hear you talk though about this i you know i try to think of other people and listeners and john you 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 in in one level you set the bar so high with your passion for life. But then when you describe the, just the culture, the waters that we're all swimming in, it was occurring to me while you were talking. uh, And this is the way I think it encourages me. Hey, I don't even have to be as joyful and as good at this as John O'Leary. I just, if I can just move the needle of hope a little bit, it'll probably stand out because people aren't encountering folks like that on a regular basis. So it's not like we all have to, 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 you know, really make a, a huge splash someplace, just a kind gesture or smile or an extra drop of patience mm. actually gets people's attention. Does, does that make sense? I mean, that's what was going on in my head while you're so, talking about this. For even 16 years into my career as a speaker, I struggle being called a motivational speaker because we all have an image of what that looks like. And hopefully for most of it looks, it looks like a van down by the river. Cause that is the essence <laughs> of a truly great motivational speaker, but many motivational speakers tell you how they put their left hand in front of their right. And the view from the top and how, Oh, you can do this too. If I can do this, you can do this. And that is the exact opposite of the message that I share in my words and my writing and our podcast. Yeah. It is all hundred percent around how broken I am. And then the doctor shows up, how confused I was when I was on fire. I didn't know which way to turn. And then my brother saved up and showed up and saved my life and burned himself in the process. How I thought I wanted to die in the front yard the morning I was still simmering naked without skin on. I wanted out. I wanted that as my option. 
And it's an option many of us have thought about in our own lives. And then my sister pulls me close and says, what is wrong with you? Shut up. Shut up. You are worthy. Keep fighting. Keep fighting. Uh, God is with you and your best is yet to come. And so my entire work at life is not about my greatness, but about how what happens when ordinary people, that's Greg, that's O'Leary, and that's you. Ordinary people show up. They take the next right step. They show up for you right on time as a living embodiment of, of hope. Yeah. And it, yeah. Change, it does change the world one life at a time. It does. And John, you're to me, when I hear you say that, that's really, I think that's the, 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 both the, the upfront statement and the undercurrent of your book in awe. It's, it's not about, Hey, look at me and look what I'm getting done. You are living your life in awe of what you see happening around you of what God is doing and these opportunities. And that sounds so simple, but it's such a profound perspective change to say, wait, I'm going to, because, you know, now I'll sound like a, like a pastor for a second, but if you're going to live in this state of awe, boy, you are a stone's throw from worship. You're, you're a stone's throw from really acknowledging how did all of this come into being anyway? And I, I just love how how that is something that you call us to mm. all the time. I mean, is there something about, uh, certainly from the book, uh, your most recent uh, book, but is there something from the book that you would say, I think this is, this is timely. This is something we need to be hanging on to. Is, is anything come to mind? For me, one of the most compelling aspects of that book is I you know, you write a book, Greg, as you've done recently, and I'm sure we'll continue to do going forward. And then you may not even read it from start to finish. But as I read this book aloud into a microphone so that, that others eventually might be able to listen to it, the part that actually stirred me the most was when I was having a visit with a guy in hospital. And he was a, you know, I, I was a hospital chaplain for three years in my late 20s. And this gentleman was dying in a great room with no flowers, no cards, no light. Literally, the shades were drawn by himself. And so as a chaplain, your job is not to convert. It's not to uh, say, hey, brother, it's going to be okay, fella. Sun's coming out tomorrow. Like, that's not it. It's just to sit and tell, be with people. Just presence. That's all. And all is not the right word. That's the core of hospital chaplaincy, to be present with people. Uh, and to be non-judgmental with people, which is a really cool way to live your Christian values, by the way, brothers and sisters. So I'm just hanging out with this guy. And uh, about an hour into the visit, he shares with me, John, if you'd seen me about a decade ago, you would have met a man who was on top of the world. I had it all. Great job, big business, top line revenue, everything, wife, kids, everything. But in the pursuit of success, I lost sight of the things that actually mattered. And then he went on to say how he pursued success to such a degree he lost his marriage. And then he lost the relationship with the girls, his three daughters. Then he went on to talk about some choices he made with alcohol, then eventually drugs that cost him everything else, his business, his money, and then eventually his health. Greg, he looks out the window, blinds are drawn. He looks back at me and he says, John, I'll never forget this line. John, I've made it to the very tippity top of the ladder. And I realize, looking back at my life, I've become successful at the wrong things because I had the ladder leaned against the wrong curse word wall. I had my ladder leaned against the wrong wall. And as a young man, it was convicting. But as I age and see more evidence of gray in my temples and wrinkles on my brow and the finiteness of life, 
I realized the need for all of us to really take note of that man's lesson. There would be nothing, I think, worse than becoming successful at things in life that do not matter at all. And my concern for me, I'll own this, and my family and the way I'm raising my kids and my neighbors and my brother and my four sisters and everybody else with ears to hear the voice today is we are pursuing stuff in life frequently that does not matter at all, not even a little bit. And we are pursuing it full tilt. And so I just, I think it's important in life that we pause to really take inventory on what wall are we resting that ladder? What does success look like? Who are the people we're climbing with? On what foundation does it rest? What eternally ultimately matters to us? Because that, that at the end of the day is the, the only thing that matters. Everything else is just part of the day. Do you think that uh, that this season that we're in, that we're coming out of, that we're not quite finished with, is that offering people a chance for this reset, for this re-evaluation, this sort of, I got to take inventory of, you know, what wall I'm leaning the ladder against? Is I mean, it seems to me like this is a, a perfect time to be asking ourselves these questions. Do, do you see people doing that these days? So I think there's two completely separate questions in your one. Yes. The first was, do you think this is the good time to be doing that? And the second was, do you see people doing exactly. this? Exactly. So there could not be a better time to be doing this than during a global pandemic, during forced shutdowns, during profound challenges in our business and our finances and our health, inability to travel and see family and everything else all of us endured for the previous 13 months. There could not be a better time. What a great time. Right. Harness this. Now, the next question is, do you see people? I think we hear a whole lot of people, Greg, and you're doing life with an awful lot of people. We hear a lot of lip service around this, like taking the lessons from this time and not returning to normal. My concern is as we lower the mask farther, as Lambert Airport allows more planes in and out, as we are able to more freely travel and go wherever we want, whenever we want, that we will go back to exactly the way we did life on March 12th of 2020. And I think what we really want to do is go back to the best of the way we used to do life back in March of 2020, pre-COVID, but also to take and borrow from the lessons that we learned over the previous 13 months to apply those going forward. Most people really enjoyed slowing down with their own individual nuclear family. Many people really liked being at seven dinners a week. They really liked making breakfast for their kids and being there for their parents and slowing down to, to watch a sunrise to not work 60 hours a week, all this stuff that many people were able to benefit from. My hope is that when we can travel, we do so and that we give God thanks for the ability to travel, but we not lose sight of the lessons that have been taught into us over the previous year, year plus. Yeah. And if, if we miss out on that, we're, we're really speaking to where we're placing our hope in the first place. I mean, I don't want to get all strong here and call them idols, but I think sometimes we just expect so much from these these places and people and goals and pursuits that just can't deliver. And it's I, I'm with you. I'm I'm almost afraid that as we start to warm back up, that everybody's going to start chasing after those empty, those empty they'll never be able to deliver sorts of goals. But you mentioned something in there about family. And I know that this is an important topic. We've talked about it before, but um, for all sorts of reasons, there are seasons in our life that, that we get a chance to focus on family and we get to, we, we, we have an opportunity sometimes to even return love and care 
to people when I think of when I think of a dad who protected his little boy and said, we're out of here and we're not going to sit through this and who grieved the whole way driving you home. It wasn't just that he would, he didn't give up and they didn't give up until they found another doctor with another answer. But I also know that now at this time in your life, you're having an opportunity to attend to your dad, would you be okay with talking a little bit about that? And, and, and you talk about a connection and it's, it's just another one of those ways mm. that God is saying, okay, here's how we'll do it. Could you talk to us about that? Well, even the way you framed the last part of that question, Greg, like what if God is using all the events in the world to just speak to your heart? Yeah. All of it. Like, can you yes. imagine if he loved you to that degree where he was moving mountains, literally, where he was jamming boats in the Suez Canal so that you would finally freaking look up and see him. <laughs> Wouldn't that be wild to have a God that loved you to that degree? The stupid thing, and I think it's the right thing, and pastor, you can correct me when I'm wrong here, is I do think God loves me that much. And I think he loves you that much. And I think that's how bad he wants a relationship with each of his kids. So um, what is he doing over this time to bring me closer to him and closer to my own earthly father? Uh, man, I, I used to check the box of seeing my mom and dad once a week. And I think if I'm being totally honest, because I have to, it's just what a, it's what a good son does. They have to see their parents once a week minimum. I was busy catching flights, being on red eyes, climbing, climbing, man. And uh, the last 13 months have demanded that uh, I not climb, I slow down, that I take inventory of who really matters, that I do a far better job loving my wife, connecting with my own four little babies at home, but also serving those who gave me life originally. And so I've been fortunate for this time to be an awesome son, Mm -hmm. to be a prodigal son, the the one who's looking over the hillside for opportunities, not for the father to come toward him, but for him to come back to his dad again and again and again. And I'm loving this time. And I'm not giving this time up once once Lambert opens back up again. For those who don't live in St. Louis, that's our airport here. Yeah. So the, the time of travel will come. But I was with my mom and dad last night. I had dinner with them. Took my dad out to test drive some wheelchairs on Saturday. <laughs> Hung out with them on Thursday, man. Hyperdrive because I recognize, well, it's twofold. One is how I think desperately my father needs me. He's got Parkinson's disease, has had so for 27 years and is really struggling massively. No ability to speak, to move, struggling, swallowing, all these issues that you deal with with Parkinson's falls all the time when he tries to transfer from one to the next. So that's one thing to be there for dad. But I think really why I'm showing up for my dad is I recognize the need of my mom, his caregiver and spouse. Like she's never once raised her hand and said, hey, kids. I could use a little help around here. I'm doing it all by myself. And no one ever says thank you. And not only do they not thank me, they never even ask how I'm doing. Because when I'm at Schnooks, they're saying, how is Denny? Oh, he's so bold. And he is brave. And he is bold. And he's awesome. But no one ever asked my mom how she's doing. So I'm uh, I'm trying to be a far better prodigal son, not only for my dad, but for my mom. Because they uh, not only do they need it, but they deserve it. Yeah. And so... I, I know the answer to this, but as you attend to them, is it not true that God attends to you in that moment? I mean, I, I know you sense his pleasure as you're 
just pouring out this blessing on your mom and dad. And it's, am I right? I mean, for me, when it's like, oh my goodness, when I, on those days where I half get it right, God's saying, that's it. That's, that's what I made you to do. There it is. Do you, did you feel it? There it was. So my mom went on a, a day retreat about a month ago. So just she, her and the ladies, man, they went off somewhere. I don't even know where they went or what they talked about, but she and the girls are talking about God and how God's working in their lives and needed a little coverage for dad. So Greg, I, I went out that morning when I kissed my wife and babies goodbye with my laptop and I was ready to go, but I was going to work, man. I was just going to get the thing done. Uh, so my dad was going to get my, my secondary scraps. I swung by the office to grab one more file to head out there before before visiting with my dad, but really just working for six hours. And when I walked into the office, I saw, in fact, for those of us watching, you see these pictures on the wall behind me. And for those that can't, my office is just flooded with pictures. So over, <laughs> over to my left, it's a Rembrandt, the prodigal father behind me, podcast guest, including Greg. But right behind me, pictures of my family. And I saw this picture of my mom and dad and my six siblings when I was a kid in that wooden station wagon you talked about, actually. So there's a picture in front of that car broken down on the side of the highway near Macon, Georgia from like 1985. And I just realized, you know, first, what an awesome memory that actually was. But secondly, how time is just flying. And this one day, six hours with my dad, it will be gone before I know it. I'll never get it back. And I don't know how much longer I have with him here, this side of eternity. I just don't know. So I left my laptop bag right here. I left the file right here. I picked up, for, don't judge listeners. I picked up two large chocolate shakes. It was 8.15 in the morning from Steak and Shake. Went out to my dad's house. We had a milkshake for breakfast. <laughs> we had barbecue for lunch. Brilliant. He didn't talk much. But I think the best work we typically do isn't in the doing or in the speaking. It's in, in the being. Man, we had an awesome six-hour hangout together as a father and as a son. And in 2021, it is the most productive, successful day I've had by far. Yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness! And is that is that a part of? I know one of your um, one of your rally cries is this idea of you know live inspired. It, it, it's I mean, <laughs> I know you don't. You don't go about your life trying to be a motivational speaker, but you do motivate when you speak. So there. Um, but is is that what it means to live inspired? Because those are those are moments that are hard to describe that fill your heart with with life. I mean, talk a little bit about that. What does it mean to live inspired? Am I am I am I making a connection I shouldn't make there? Is it is it different than what you're saying? I almost view it as like hope, gratitude for all past experiences in our life, joy in the present and hope for tomorrow. It's almost like this three-part situation of you in life by looking back at everything you've got and saying, God, thank you. But the good and the bad, just thank you. It led me perfectly to hear having joy in this current season and having this obnoxious, profound grat- uh, optimism that tomorrow is going to be even better. This side of eternity, but also on the other side. So that's what I mean when I talk about living inspired. Okay. It, it includes business and top line. It includes impact in the community. It includes intimacy with your spouse and kids that are doing great things at school. It, yeah, it's all those things. But it's really just being hyper-present in this moment because it's all you got. 
right. it's all you got. So the reason the term live inspired came about is we, as a speaker and an author, people would send us like love letters and thank you notes and tweets and all this stuff. And we kept getting the same response back afterwards. I just feel like living inspired, living inspired, living inspired. So after a while, you start taking your own medicine, realizing, well, if that's what it is doing, let's celebrate that that's what we do. Right. We help individuals and organizations live inspired. Right. Right. Well, okay. So let's talk about that for just a second. You do help individuals and you do help organizations. And I really do want, we're going to, we're going to give folks information at the end, but I, I want them to hear from you. What's the best way to tap into the brilliance of John O'Leary? If they're wanting him at an event, if they're wanting him, uh, what, what, what's the best way for people to, to just experience more of what you're offering to us? So even the way you set that up, Greg, it makes me want to punch you, man, but you're, you're hitting behind <laughs> cords. We're 22 miles apart right now. Uh, the brilliance of John O'Leary is best described in my first book on fire when the publishing company had a picture of me uh, wearing a beautiful suit tied up just right. My arms were crossed and I was looking at the reader like, guys, I'm awesome. And if you read this book, you too shall be awesome. So I sent an email back and I said, hey, guys, uh, read the book one more time and then come up with a better time, better cover art. And when they did, eventually O'Leary's picture is nowhere on the front of it or in the back of it. Uh, on the front of the book on fire, are these like smoky red and orange letters that say on fire. And if yeah. you look closely, they're little mirrors. And if you look closely, you, re- you're, you, know, you don't see O'Leary's face. You see yours, Greg. Yeah. And you see yours, listener, and you see your whoever's looking at this. That's who they see this this ability in their own lives to be a miracle for somebody else. But they got to show up. That yeah. you just, just got to go. And I, I think we keep waiting for Trump to do it or for Biden to do it. But the invitation of our work ultimately is um, it's typically not the White House that gets it done. It's your house. So go. Let's, let's go. Let's do it together, though. And so uh, the brilliance of O'Leary's seed and the cover of On Fire, where he recognizes how imperfect the dude is. And so where you can learn more about John, you can go to JohnO'LearyInspires.com. So JohnO'LearyInspires.com, or you can Google the name John O'Leary and it ought to pop up somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And both of those books uh, will be available any place books are sold, On Fire and In Awe. And they're both just tremendous books. And uh, frankly, I think timely books right now, John, uh, the kinds of things that we need to be reconsidering. And if you want to reset your brain, let me ask you a few things uh, here, just as we kind of start to wrap this up, we we're, we're trying to, we're giving out these, these way to go awards to people. And so, you know, if, if, if you wanted to give a shout out to a person, to an organization, mm-hmm. to an artist that is just doing great work in the world, and maybe, maybe, Nobody else is noticing it or nobody else has heard about it yet. Who would you nominate for a way to go award? Can I do two? Sure. So the first one that came to mind, I'm a, I'm a, a big brother myself. So I'm active in Big Brothers, Big yeah. Sisters. There is a leader here in town named Becky James Hatter. She's been doing the work of being executive director for almost three decades. And when you think about many of the challenges wrong with our community, and some solutions to it. One way is to bring people together who may not get together otherwise. Outside of our faith communities, I don't know anybody else doing it better than Big Brothers Big Sisters, and I don't know a better executive director anywhere than Becky James Hatter. She's an all-star. She's awesome. So Becky, I love you. That's great. Great job. And the second is a guy, and as you wrapped up the question, he jumped into my name, my mind. His name is Eric Jenis. 
And I nominate him not only for the award, but also to be a guest sometime on your podcast. Eric is a Christian musician who was in front of the finest orchestras around the world. He's a, he's a orchestra leader, been around Europe, Asia, all over the world, but he has a heart for people who spend time behind prison, behind bars. So he left all of that behind. And now all he does all day long is travel from penitentiary to penitentiary, bringing light and beauty into a marketplace that never sees either, ever. He doesn't get paid for it. He pays for the fellow musicians. He flies people from San Francisco and Boston because he wants it not to be him on the piano. He wants it to be, they've never heard strings frequently in these prison cells. So he brings in these phenomenal musicians from around the world to play for these guys that no one shows up for and no one sees hope in their lives, except for this one guy named Eric Jenis. He's brilliant. He's humble. He recently lost a son, and I'm not speaking out of turn because he's talking about this already, recently lost a son by suicide. He is so crushed, and yet he keeps showing up for others. Mm. He's he's the most life-giving, loving, faithful saint I've ever met. So Eric Genesis is an amazing human being. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, those were great. Those were great answers. Um, We've got uh, two more things we wanted to do with you before we let you go. One of them was just this, you know, it's a godzillion and one. And so this is kind of the and one questions. If there are all of these ways that we can connect with each other and with God in this universe that he has created, let me just ask you these in in short order. And then I'm going to request one more story from you, if that's okay. But uh, like, and you've already covered some of this, but like if there was one person that you said has made a lasting impact on your life, who's that one person? Mm. I mean, I, there's too many. It's, and yeah, it's I, so I, difficult. I've you not off a couple times since I've been sharing stories. So I better go quickly on this one. My mom, I talked about my it. dad and Greg, it. you've heard me celebrate my father before in your presence. I love, I love my dad. And yet, you know, and yet my mom, she gave me life. She raised me. And we could go through a whole lot of stories with my mom, but maybe the turning point in my life, and it's almost like a a baptismal moment in some regards. When I was in hospital day one in the emergency room, dying, no reason for hope, and I wanted out. It was my mother who walked in. She took my right hand in hers. She patted my bald head and she says, I love you. So I said, mom, knock it off with the love. Am I going to die? And, you know, and Jesus responds so frequently with questions. So there's a question asked of him and he responds with a question right, or a parable right. that doesn't seem to fit in with anything. What? what? Give me an answer, please. <laughs> so I asked my mom a very simple question. Am I going to die? And her response was, do you want to? You want to die? And I look back and I say, mama, I don't want to die. I want, I want to live. And her response was good. Then baby, look at me. You take the hand of God. You walk. You walk the journey with Jesus and you fight like you never fought before. She said, your father will be with you every step along the way. Your daddy and I will be here too. You're not alone. But John, you got to fight. Wow. And I think sometimes we do forget that life is packed with adversity and hardship. And uh, (laughs) we forget that God's not leaving our side. You are not alone, but you got to also do a little bit of your, pick up your mat. I think you preached on this one time, pick up your mat, man, fight forward with me. Yeah. So uh, 
my mom is a phenomenal teacher that's of mine. So good. That's so good. What's one way these days that you are connecting to God? Maybe it's maybe it's a tried and true thing for you, or maybe it's a new way that you're discovering. But what's one way you're connecting with God these days? I mean, I could give you answers you probably heard before, like through the word or through some some sacred books or morning rituals, which all that is part of it. Sure. Uh, for me, drive it in silence is a really cool way to connect with God. Okay. So I drive around a lot through work and through travel, I, but I, I may not even own a radio in my car, man. I just, I'm always just listening to him. And it's a really cool way to connect with his will in my life. Cause otherwise I'm tuning into my desires. I know me, that's what I do. Yeah. So that's a really cool way. And secondly, during COVID, so now 13 months or so, my wife, Beth and I take a walk almost every night, regardless of the weather. So when it's gorgeous like it is today, I cannot wait to get home, grab the dog, grab her arm, and lap, lap the neighborhood, which allows you to connect with God. But even when it's cold, snowy, misty, hot, whatever it might be, uh, he's in nature and he's away from technology and away from the business. So the, the, the more I choose through intention to get away from me and closer to him, the more I find him, Greg. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. What's one lesson that you uh, wish you had learned earlier? Gosh, I mean, we partially talked about it with the ladder. Yeah. And then if you're going forward, what, what, what is the lesson from the lesson? Just slow down. Okay. You know, like what, what, what are you racing for? What, what are you, what are you racing toward really? Yeah. And in, in that piece, it allows you not necessarily to lower the desires that you have in your heart to make the world a better place somehow through the talents that God has instilled in your life, but to actually enjoy the journey forward. So I'm, I'm still running. I'm still pursuing. I'm still yeah, climbing. Man. I'm just grateful that, that I'm not the one doing the work. I, I'm co-pilot at this point in my journey. So I'm, I'm, I'm slowing down and enjoying the view out the windshield. What's one thing, and this could be, John, this could be a book, this could be a song, this could be an app, this could be a restaurant, but what's one thing you're loving these days that you wish other people knew about? So right before we went live, I I read this little book right after lunch called uh, Ask Him. And it just, it's probably like 250 ways to draw closer to God. And just to stop asking for things strictly for you and to start seeking ways that he might work through you for kingdom call, for kingdom purposes. And so today's reading, and I don't even know the author of this book, and it's it's seemingly pretty small stuff. Ask him for ways today to see injustices and to speak out against them. Ask today, ask him today for ways to see injustices and to speak out against them. Greg, I would never have asked God, our Father, for ways today to seek injustices and speak out against them. But th- this book reminds me, like, well, what if it's not necessarily about what you want for yourself, John? So I'm looking today and throughout the afternoon for ways to find injustices. I have every confidence I'll, I'll find some. Yeah. And then to use the voice that we have to speak out against it. Okay. That's, that's just so good. And I... Uh, this is just such a thick question at the end, but I can't I can't leave without asking you to tell one more story, if that's okay. And it's a huge one. It's a big one. And I wouldn't ask you if you hadn't written about it and if you I haven't heard you speak on it. Um, but I appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability 
when you began to talk about expressing gratitude and particularly what the, the moment the the I'm talking about the Buck family now and just this can you it's another one of those stories that stays with me when it's like okay I've got to live intentionally I've got to express gratitude I don't want to say anything else but can we leave with just this story echoing in our listeners ears because I think it'll help all of us one more time John Ugh. so there's a painting that hangs to my right called the prodigal son by Rembrandt. And I don't think it's an actual Rembrandt. If it is, I work in Kirk with you all combined, steal an $11 million painting, but I'm exactly. pretty sure it's a knockoff, man. So it hangs to my wall. And the reason I became familiar with it is that you know, a writer named Henry Nowen, a big theologian, brilliant guy. And a lot of times the way he conveys his message is to speak so intimately about his own brokenness. And as Henry, it's spelled an I at the end of Henry, as Henry writes about his own weaknesses, you're almost like, oh, dude, you probably should not have shared that. I have yeah. lost all respect for you, man. And then you turn the page because you want to see what Henry's going to teach you next. And then you, you turn the page. I think it's one of the reasons why we love the 11 apostles, man. It's the 12. You know, we love them all because you see in their own brokenness, reason for hope in your own life. Like you see a little Peter in you and you see a little Judas in you and you see a little Thomas. Yeah, I doubt too, and you see a little Thomas in yeah. you. So uh, I, I only say that as a backdrop to the story because I'm embarrassed to share the story. Like I, I wish it wasn't mine, but it is. And maybe in hearing it, it might allow you to make amends for some of the things you've <laughs> made mistakes on in your own life, but also to be a little bit more forgiven of those around you. I heard recently someone say, you know, strive forward to hate your own sins far more than you hate the sins of others. Mm. Well, that's pretty good too. Strive to hate your own sins far more than I hate the sins of others. So this is one of the sins I hate. The fact that uh, a guy who changed my life never knew it. And so I'll, I'll give this, the cliff notes, three minute version of this. And Greg, if you want to ask clarifying questions, feel free. But when I was burned, I needed advocates in my life. And Jack Buck was the radio announcer for the St. Louis Cardinals. He had heard about this little boy with no chance of surviving the first night. And even though he was told he would not even be there on Sunday morning, Jack goes. There's, you can make that a whole Sunday service. He goes, even though there's no reason for hope. He goes. He walks into my room. He sees a little boy dying there, unable to see or move. And he just encourages me. He said, kid, wake up. You are going to live. You're going to survive. Keep fighting. John O'Leary Day at the ballpark will make it all worthwhile. See you soon. And then he leaves. He's told that the little kid won't be there the following day. There's no reason for hope. And yet the following day he comes back. Kid, wake up. Kid, wake up. Those visits go on for five months in hospital. We have John O'Leary Day at the ballpark. He learns that evening I can't hold anything with my broken, damaged, bandaged hands. So he sends me a baseball signed by a cardinal named Ozzie Smith. And below the ball was, hey, kid. If you want a second baseball, write a thank you letter. You know, he'd been with me, Greg. He knew I could not pick up my mat because I had not ever tried. <laughs> so for the first time since being burned with the help of a therapist on my left and my mother on my right, they pushed my hands together and a little boy with no fingers yet wrote a note to Ozzy. Thank you for the baseball. And two days later, I got a second baseball and then a third and then a fourth. And by the end of that year, 60 baseballs. A relationship blossoms out of that. When I graduate university, he sends me the baseball he received 
when he went into the Hall of Fame. It's this crystal priceless heirloom that Joe Buck should have in his home on above the fireplace. And instead, some broken, hungover 22-year-old college kid graduating university is now holding it saying, oh, thanks, awkwardly. I didn't deserve, I don't deserve this. But he gave it. And there were no strings attached ever. There was no expectation even afterwards. Jack, as many of your listeners who live in this marketplace probably know, went on to have Parkinson's disease and, and struggle for five months at the end of his life with cancer and Parkinson's. Five months is the exact same amount of time I spent in hospital. And when I was in hospital, Jack visited me every day. So here, here's the opportunity, you know, finally, man. And the question I would ask for those of you who are still tuning in is like, how many times do you think John O'Leary went down to visit his dear friend, the man who outside of family members changed his life more than anybody else? How many times? And my answer is not once. And it's not because I was selfish and maybe not even self-centered. I never once felt worthy of the love he gave. Not once. And if you don't feel worthy of receiving a gift, how can you possibly be capable of giving it back? You know, if you're not worthy of getting something, yeah. a talent, one, three, four, whatever it is, how could you possibly, how could you possibly give it back? So a man who never felt worthy of these gifts was then also a little boy who wasn't worthy of giving it back near the end of his life. And so now once over those five months that I go down to visit my friend Jack Buck because I felt unworthy of the relationship and of the gifts. And it breaks my heart to admit that, but it's, it is true. And then I got a call from the Buck family the day he passed away in June of 2002, uh, that their daddy had died and they just wanted me to be aware of it. And, you know, here are the funeral arrangements. Please join us. It's a beautiful church. We'd love to have you. Well, I felt honored. So I, I hopped into my beat up old Jeep Cherokee, put on my nicest $49 suit and, you know, had a roommate tie a tie for me. I'm like 23 year olds, had, had no idea how to do any of this stuff. And Greg, I remember parking the car, fixing my little tie as best I could. I, you know, I hadn't worn a tie since high school prom. And I looked to my left and to my left is Dan, Dan Dudorf getting out of this long stretched black Mercedes. Yeah, big hall of fame, offensive tackle guy. Yeah. Yeah. Known and rich. And he belonged. For sure he belonged. And then I looked to my right and I saw a couple of Cardinal players over here. I looked behind me in the mirror and I saw the ownership of the DeWitt family. The, the team coming through, man. Mike Shannon and his dark hair. Everybody, Joe Buck walks by with his wife. And I look around this, this parking lot with fancy people and known commodities and successful human beings and his friends, the kinds of friends that would show up for a brother when he was struggling for five months in hospital, the, the kinds of people that belonged at his funeral. And I also realized in seeing those kinds, what kind I was. And so this, you know, just stinks, man. I hate this story, but hopefully it freaked me. Hang on for it. I remember as the last person walked into church that I waited a few extra minutes, turned the car back on, loosened the tie, reversed, pulled out with the Oregon plane, made it about three miles down the street, pulled over, man, and had, I cried in ways that I did not know I could. 
I lost my best friend in college in a drinking and driving event, single car accident. I wept at Mark's death and many, many, many times since. I lost my grandparents. I loved them. They were some of my best friends. I'd never wept the way I wept that day on the side of the road. And after more than an hour of just like you know, the dirty kind, using this sleeve yeah. and then this, yeah. looked at my watch, made a commitment to, uh, to make amends. And I realized I was too late to go back to that church, but not too late to live that legacy going forward. And I started in earnest. Uh, I went out to a second set of grandparents' house. I'd never stopped by their, their house unannounced. They, you would have thought Ed McMahon was there with the, you know, the, the clearing house check for $10 million when their grandson's at the door with this dirty old suit and the tie half hung saying, hey, guys, just came out to say hello. And I love you. Thank you for all you did for me. We had a little lunch together and it was awesome. It's like checking a box, free, like freedom. Called my parents that evening from home. I said, hey, guys, I want to take you out to dinner. I'd never bought their dinner before. I'm 23, never bought their dinner. Bought them dinner. I wrote them both love letters. I read it to them in front of them. And then I handed these letters. They, and they were profoundly moved. Freedom, check in the box. I made a commitment after I got out of the hospital, I would never go back to one. And I realized that was just a lie keeping me from being who God was calling me to be. And so I've been back to many hospital rooms subsequently, but the journey began when I became a hospital chaplain. And that journey began shortly after Jack Buck's passing, when I researched, how do you serve kids who are struggling in hospital? Chaplaincy. Awesome. You don't even need to know Greek to do it. I can do this. Like a six-month study program, man, and I'm a hospital chaplain. Check the box. doing this. And then one of the harder things I did, I, uh, I took his son, Joe. Joe Buck is in his own right, a wildly successful radio announcer, now television announcer and huge media individual. Took him out to lunch. I um, read this long, long apology letter to a guy named Jack. And it begins with the words, dear Jack. And it went on to share every single thing that Jack did for me. And every single thing I wish I had done in response. Everything. And like I'm getting with you right now, dude, I'm, I'm an easy cry. A good dog food commercial will normally get me. So I, I'm weeping in front of him. Every time I look up, Joe Buck is crying to get to the end. I tell Jack I love him. John O'Leary, the letter's signed. I hand it over to Joe. <sighs> Check the box. Freedom. And I've been trying to live as free. When you go back to John, how are you drawing closer to Jesus Christ, man? By trying to live free, unencumbered, let him carry my yoke. Just let him carry it for me. I'm not that good, but he is. And so one of the great turning points in my story was missing out on the opportunity of visiting Jack, missing out on the opportunity of sitting in the back row of that church, but then determining shortly afterwards, and I'm going to do better going forward. John, um, the part of me is really sorry that I asked you to tell that story, and part of me is so grateful, and I'm so grateful for the way God has used you and the way that you have said yes to him again and again and again. And you can talk to me about Henry now and all you want, but your life and your words and your stories, they're page turners. I mean, I'm constantly turning the page to say, okay, what is he going to say to me next? What is God going to say to me next through John? And I appreciate your honesty and your courage and your humor. And I love you, friend. And thank you for joining us today. And um, thank you for reminding me what matters most today. Thanks for listening to a Godzillion and One podcast. Subscribe, share this episode with a friend, and head over to gregholder.com for the show notes. And as always, 
Stop and notice this week the shockingly and seemingly endless ways to connect with each other, this world, and the God who made it all. We'll see you next time.